both Riyadh and Abu Dhabi have leaders who view the Islamic Republic as a grave threat. That they have in common. However, I would argue that the leadership in Abu Dhabi has always been more flexible and much more pragmatic when it comes to its strategies for dealing with Tehran. Flashpoint. I'm your host, Andrew Holland. Everyone listening has had their world turned upside down in the last couple of months due to the coronavirus. And that's not limited to our personal lives. International norms and diplomacy are in flux, too. I invited ASP adjunct fellow Giorgio Cafiro on to talk about the new corona diplomacy in the Middle East, where rich Gulf states have used their resources to help neighbors, friends, and even adversaries deal with the coronavirus. Of course, humanitarian agendas uh, have also come up against geopolitical concerns. Giorgio is the CEO and founder of Gulf State Analytics, a Washington, D.C.-based geopolitical risk consultancy. His expertise in the nuances of the relationships of Gulf states shows how everything is new in Gulf diplomacy, while the underlying facts and motivations still remain stubborn. What comes across is a region where everything is in flux, and states have everything to play for. Now, let's get to the discussion. Giorgio Cafiro, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you guys. So thanks for joining us. So you've been an adjunct fellow with ASP for several years, and and you've been writing and and speaking about Middle East policy uh, for your whole career. You're CEO of Gulf State Analytics. I want to talk, though, most recently you wrote a paper about corona diplomacy in the Middle East, uh, specifically looking at UAE and Abu Dhabi and what they're doing. But I think this is worth bringing to a bigger picture throughout the Middle East, because this is an important issue. What do you mean by corona diplomacy? What is virus diplomacy? Well, the global COVID-19 pandemic represents a huge security threat to all governments and all societies worldwide. This is a shared human security challenge that no government can ignore. For the six Arab states in the Gulf Cooperation Council, the pandemic is a huge threat when it comes to the health, economic interests, tourism, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. At the same time, coronavirus has also represented a unique opportunity for countries such as the UAE, also Qatar, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia to boost their humanitarian credentials um, and to uh, better realize their soft power aspirations. These are mostly countries with very deep pockets, thanks to oil, natural gas, small, um, relatively small populations. And while these countries have their own crises in terms of COVID-19 at home, they have been able to provide a significant amount of humanitarian assistance throughout all corners of the world. And that is um, what coronavirus uh, diplomacy means for countries like the UAE. Yeah, so that that's kind of the way they've been diplo- doing diplomacy for a while is kind of checkbook diplomacy, 
right? And and so this is a continuation of that. But the idea that they, they say is that they're doing this in, in solidarity, and this is quoting from the UAE, in solidarity with human beings without letting politics enter the equation. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, the UAE gained her independence in 1971, and during the first decade of the UAE's independence, the country really established itself as the top Arab donor. Hmm. During that period of history, the UAE was providing a lot of humanitarian assistance, a lot of financial aid to some of the poorer Arab countries, such as hmm. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, so on and so forth. Uh, what we're seeing today, as you point out, is definitely a continuation of this humanitarian diplomacy. But what's interesting here is that the UAE's support for countries coping with coronavirus extends far beyond the Islamic world. While mm. many Muslim-majority countries across Central Asia, the Middle East, and Africa have been receiving Emirati support, many other regions of the world, from the Balkans to South America to Western Europe uh, to North America, in, including the United States, actually, have mm -hmm. also been receiving a lot of humanitarian aid from the UAE. In fact, uh, the latest statistic is that 64 countries worldwide have benefited from the UAE's uh, humanitarian assistance during this pandemic. Interesting. But, I mean, in the Middle East and, and global politics in general, but maybe in particular the Middle East, it's never really true that things like this are done without letting politics into the equation, mm -hmm. right? You know, politics are central and politics, you know, partially this is just sort of a, a soft power idea of let's show how good and beneficial we can be. We've got excess capital. We've got excess money. So let's let's start getting, giving that out. But it's also kind of beyond that as well. It, it, they do kind of pick and choose. And so you bring up two very specific examples in your article, uh, uh, Syria and Iran. Uh, so let's, let's start with Syria. I thought it was really notable that the coronavirus uh, brought about the first discussions between an Arab leader and Bashar al-Assad back in late March, right? When, mm -hmm. when Abu Dhabi's crown prince talked with him about coronavirus. What was the background there and how, how did, did that come about? Yes, in, indeed. Uh, there's always a geopolitical context we have to yeah. uh, take into account. And when it comes to corona and diplomacy, there certainly are uh, national interests on the part of the UAE that are very much in play. And Syria is an example of that. Um, when the Arab Spring uprising erupted in Syria back in 2011, the UAE joined other Gulf states in terms of opposing the Syrian government. However, unlike Saudi Arabia and Qatar, the UAE never went all in when it came to efforts to, topper, to topple the government led by Bashar al-Assad. This mainly was a consequence 
of the fact that the UAE's leadership understood that if the Syrian government was overthrown by rebels, that the Saudis, Qataris, Turks, and some Western countries were supporting, the outcome was not going to be positive from Abu Dhabi's standpoint, Hmm. because it was clear that the rebellion was dominated by Islamists. Hmm. We need to understand that Abu Dhabi is rigidly opposed to political Islam throughout the entire Arab region. The UAE's position is very rigid and very simple. The Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization, a terrorist movement, an extremist movement. And for all the problems that the UAE's government may have seen with Syria's government, they were more fearful of the possibility of Syria being ruled by the Muslim Brotherhood or other Islamist actors that were involved in the conflict. So we saw the UAE begin to warm up to the Syrian government after Russia became so heavily involved in the conflict in 2015. And at that point, it became clear that Assad's government was not going anywhere. And Mm -hmm. so the UAE, which has often maintained a very flexible foreign policy, uh, actually um, warmed up to Damascus. And by 2018, there was an official rapprochement between the two governments and the Emiratis reopened their diplomatic mission in Damascus. Hmm. Now, ever since that point, the UAE has been playing a leading role in the Arab world when it comes to the efforts to reintegrate Assad's government into the Middle East's diplomatic fold. Fast forward to this year, when coronavirus uh, broke out, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, Mohammed bin Zayed, who is the de facto ruler of the UAE, had a phone call with Bashar al-Assad, and he uh, emphasized that the Emirates will stand by Syria in their struggle with this pandemic. And then Mohammed bin Zayed went to Twitter to... uh, tell the whole world about his phone conversation that he had with Bashar al-Assad, which marked the first time that an Arab leader publicly uh, spoke about a direct conversation with the Syrian president. And we have to uh, realize that from Abu Dhabi's perspective, this pandemic has represented an opportunity for the UAE to convince more countries in the region, more countries worldwide, that it's time to let bygones be bygones, and that if you know coronavirus is going to get out of control in Syria, the politics doesn't matter. The disease will be able to spread from Syria to other countries in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean, and the best way to deal with the threat of COVID-19 in Syria is to work with the Syrian government. Now, there are definitely other players in the Arab region, a host of Western governments that do not see it that way. Right. But nonetheless, this is uh, definitely the position of the UAE. I mean, it's certainly there, there seems to be a case here of, of two sides. One side is kind of that humanitarian, 
you know, you have to deal with the government here to, to push it, to stop the, the virus. The virus doesn't care about politics, obviously. Um, but at, at the same time, there does seem to be an element of opportunism here by the, the Emiratis to say, hey, look, we have a long history with the Assad government. They were, they were close with uh, the, you know, Bashar's father. They were close with the Syrian regime for a long time. And as you, you know, they've taken a, a stance during the, um, d- during the aftermath of the Arab Spring and the long Syrian civil war of, we don't like these, these opponents. So if there is an element of opportunism here that they're trying to kind of bring the Syrian government out of the cold, right? Bring them back mm-hmm. into the, the society of, of Arab governments in, in a way, right? Absolutely. That's 100% correct. And another variable in the equation that cannot be ignored is Turkey and mm-hmm. its interventions in Syria, Libya, and elsewhere in the region. Mm-hmm. Because Turkey has a Muslim Brotherhood-friendly foreign policy, the United Arab Emirates views Ankara's agenda in the Arab world as a grave threat. Mm-hmm. And the UAE has many strategic clashes with Turkey, from Qatar to Libya to Sudan to Yemen, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what the UAE wants to do is to bring Syria into a block of Arab states that stand against a rising Turkey. From the perspective of the Emirati, Syrian, Egyptian uh, governments, Turkey has a so-called neo-Ottoman foreign policy agenda. This neo-Ottoman agenda is seen as extremely dangerous from Abu Dhabi's perspective, and they are willing to work with almost any Arab actor, including the Assad regime, that will um, serve as sort of a bulwark, if you will, against Ankara's foreign policy. Yeah. So, so you have kind of this, this very humanitarian and high-minded sounding, oh, we have to stop the virus in service of a very real politic agenda. Let's, let's push all of the, um, the humanitarian, um, cr- the humanitarian uh, crimes, really, that the Assad regime uh, did for the last decade. Let's push that under the rug. Forget about that. You know, the, the civil war is basically over. Uh, let's bring them back into the fold. So, so it, it, there is kind of this, this two sides of, of this for sure. And I was going to get into this um, a, a little bit later, but I think it's a good time to get into it now. It is, uh, there is this, this divide, right, in, in the Arab world and, and kind of the borders of the Arab world with, with Turkey, uh, but its, it's most, uh, most extreme sort of show is the the Qatar blockade, right? So the Qatar uh, versus the the Saudis and the Emiratis. And um, we've now hit three years uh, of the blockade. Uh, Shows no signs of letting up, though every so often there's, there appears to be some beginnings of negotiations or somebody says we'll mediate, the Kuwaitis say we'll mediate between 
this and, and try to find a way out. But the divides are real between what the, the, the goals of the Qatar government, the goals of the Emirat, Emiratis and Saudis. So there is these two competing power centers. And, and now with coronavirus uh, kind of locking everybody down, uh, maybe the blockade is, uh, everybody's kind of blockaded in their own houses. Uh, <laughs> we're all blockaded. Um, but it's a, it continues and this divide shows no sign of letting up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Throughout the past three years, there have been diplomatic efforts on the part of Kuwait, the United States, and some other countries as well to bring both sides to reconciliation. Mm -hmm. The truth is these efforts have been completely futile. My assessment is that we're nowhere near any easing of the blockade, let alone an end to the blockade. In fact, um, very recently, I believe within the past 24 hours, the Saudis came out and they said, our conditions for a rapprochement with Doha are still the 13 demands that the blockading country set forth back in 2017. Right. Um, these demands were simply a non-starter. Right. They included um, shutting down Al Jazeera, which is, of course, Qatar's state-owned media network, mm -hmm. um, downgrading Qatar's relationship with Iran, shutting down a Turkish military base in Qatar, and the whole a set of other demands that would basically deprive Qatar of its right to function as a sovereign country. Right. Qatar it's has made, take away its sovereignty overall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Qatar has made it clear that it's willing to negotiate. It's willing to make compromises. Uh, but sovereignty, as the Emir said, is the red line. And because, as we, we mentioned earlier, the UAE is so rigid in its anti-Islamist positions, its anti-Turkish positions, that unless Qatar were to sever its ties with various Islamist actors in the region and fundamentally change its relationship with Turkey, I, I just simply do not see Abu Dhabi being open to a renormalization of relations with Doha. What is interesting is the fact that when we first had the outbreak of COVID-19, some analysts were speculating that this pandemic could possibly create new conditions that would lead to Qatar and the blockading states moving toward normalization of relations. The argument was that this pandemic is a threat to all countries in the Gulf region and um, all the countries will realize that it's time to overcome the issues that led to the Gulf crisis, make the GCC a, a functional uh, organization again. However, that hasn't happened. While Mohammed bin Zayed has had no problem getting on the phone with Bashar al-Assad, he um, simply will not talk to the Emir of Qatar, let alone uh, renormalize relations with Qatar. It's really significant when you consider that it was up until 2017, Qatar and the UAE were, at least on paper, allies fighting together right. in Yemen. Um, but it seems that the UAE is, is much closer to the Syrian regime than they are to one of their fellow GCC member states. It's pretty right. significant. 
amazing. Uh, really, really significant and amazing how that all has played out. Um, has Doha tried to play in this, this Corona diplomacy as well? Have we seen them going out and in the same way and, and trying to, to send support to, to other countries? Absolutely. Uh, UAE is not alone in terms of uh, Corona diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, the Qataris have also been giving a tremendous amount of humanitarian assistance to China, to Iran, mm -hmm. to Spain, Italy, Lebanon, the list goes on. Uh, so many yeah. countries all over the world have received aid uh, from the Qataris. And this is, you know, just as it's the case for the UAE, Qatar is trying to boost its uh, humanitarian credentials. Right. You know, after there is, after a vaccine is developed uh, for COVID-19 and, and the world moves beyond the pandemic, um, everyone around the world is going to remember how different countries were conducting themselves during the worst of times when uh, coronavirus was ravaging countries yeah. and the assistance that the Emiratis, the Qataris, the Turks, the Chinese, the Russians, the Cubans, um, all of the help that they gave countries in need will be remembered for a long time. And this will impact geopolitical relations probably for decades to come. I think that's right. And I, and I think that's a, that's a really important point to, to make. And uh, I want to get to the, to the other country that, that really was one of the earliest and biggest outbreaks uh, of, of COVID-19, and that, that was Iran. Uh, and so Iran obviously was, was ravaged by, this, the, by the coronavirus, including a number of their leaders uh, getting it and some even dying from it. Uh, and it, we had this, uh, Iran is really one of the main reasons for the split between the, the, within the GCC, between Qatar and, and uh, the UAE and, and Saudi. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was really interesting to me that you noted that Abu Dhabi has sent plane loads of PPE and, and a number of, a, a, a great amount of aid to Iran to, to help them. So, so perhaps uh, if there's no sign of, of let up in the blockade between the GCC countries, there does perhaps seem to be an opening uh, by the GCC countries towards Iran. Yes, it's a, a very complicated situation, um, yeah. although ev everything you said is completely correct. Um, obviously, Iran is uh, one of the UAE's neighbors, and yeah. the UAE, politics aside, politics being irrelevant, the UAE mm -hmm. realizes that if COVID-19 gets further out of control in Iran, it's incredibly naive to think it's going to only be an Iranian problem. Of course, mm -hmm. the disease will spread to all of Iran's neighbors, including countries of the Persian Gulf, such as the UAE. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, there are important uh, geopolitical and security-related variables in this equation that are important to note. Mm -hmm. um, there has been a difference between the way in which Abu Dhabi has approached Iran and how Saudi Arabia has approached Iran. Both Riyadh and Abu Dhabi have leaders who view the Islamic Republic as a grave threat. That they have in common. However, I would 
argue that the leadership in Abu Dhabi has always been more flexible and much more pragmatic when it comes to its strategies for dealing with Tehran. Uh, the Emiratis realized in 2019, last summer, that the Trump administration's campaign of maximum pressure left the Emirates in a dangerous position. Mm. It became clear that despite the fact that Abu Dhabi had lobbied the Trump administration to pursue this maximum pressure campaign, at the end of the day, the Emiratis realized that Trump did not have the back of the Arab Gulf states. And a country like the UAE has essentially no strategic depth. When you just simply look at a map of the region, right. if there right were there. ever to be a war that involved Iran, the Iranian military could easily retaliate against all of its Arab neighbors that support the Trump administration's agenda against Iran. Mm -hmm. Iranian missiles could do a tremendous amount of damage to the smaller GCC countries, including the UAE. So while the UAE was supportive of the Trump administration putting more pressure on Iran, the Emiratis did not want a war to break out. And the Emiratis wanted to hedge a little bit and sort of mitigate and minimize the risks of a conflict, or at least mitigate the threat that such a conflict would pose to the United Arab Emirates. And we saw last year, uh, not a rapprochement between Abu Dhabi and Tehran. I think mm -hmm. analysts who saw it that way were reading too much into it, but we saw an effort on the part of Abu Dhabi to at least cool the temperatures with Iran a little bit. And in my opinion, the Emiratis' assistance to Iran amid the COVID-19 crisis has to be seen within this context of the UAE trying to cool the temperatures a little bit um, when it comes to Iran. And I think um, the results could be very positive for the UAE. And in fact, officials in Tehran, and, and I quote, they said the UAE's help to Iran brings more logic to the relationship between Iran and the Emirates. And, you know, this is a, a very difficult period of time for Iran. The sanctions have hurt the country's economy and COVID-19 has obviously had a disastrous and catastrophic impact on Iran. And the Iranians are gonna remember uh, which countries came to help uh, it during the pandemic. And this will um, buy the UAE some goodwill in Iran, and there will be implications uh, far into the future. And I will also add that the UAE understands that Trump will possibly be a one-term president. There is definitely a possibility that Joe Biden will win the election in November. And if that happens, I think there's every reason to conclude that Washington's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran could change significantly. I don't think Joe Biden would end all of the pressure that America's putting on Iran, but it's a safe bet to say that Biden would certainly ease the pressure on Iran, possibly bring the United States back to the nuclear deal that Trump pulled the U.S. out of. Right. And if that happens, uh, the UAE will want to 
be able to adapt and to be flexible. And I think that this uh, corona diplomacy factors into that thinking. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I think that's, that's an important note here to bring it to what is happening in Washington, because Washington is always, uh, if not the most important player, one of the most important players in the Persian Gulf, right? Decisions made here in Washington do echo throughout the region. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think we actually did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with uh, Ambassador Richard Kauserlich, a Consensus for American Security member, uh, about sanctions uh, and Iranian, Iranian sanctions, talking about um, how it was really a missed opportunity for the United States to uh, not necessarily uh, withdraw the sanctions during the COVID crisis, but to, to do something to, to send medicine or PPE or aid or something like that, because even a little bit gets noticed and could uh, be a signal and, and, as you said, long remembered. Uh, and, but that, of course, was not a part of maximum pressure. Maximum pressure means maximum across all, all sides. And, and I, I do worry that this is going to rebound against the United States uh, for a long time. Uh, but you're right. They, there is a you know a cup, an upcoming hinge point here with the election, and there's there are certainly going to be differences in foreign policy. But but I think the uh, American foreign policy will change probably most significantly vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, based mm -hmm. on who is elected. Every other places there's going to be some changes in tone and and everything. But there is an obvious difference between the Trump administration and a, a Biden-Obama administration, like, like what Obama did. Um, so, you know, the, the consequences are huge for the, the Gulf. Absolutely. And, and Joe Biden himself said that he believed that there needed to be humanitarian exemptions uh, to the sanctions during uh, this pandemic. And you're absolutely right. Um, I remember it was uh, George Bush Sr. when he talked about Iran, he said, goodwill begets goodwill. And right. I think that definitely applies uh, in 2020 as much as it did back in 1989. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it, it, it doesn't always have to be this, this um, sp downward spiral. It, there could be ways for it to, to snowball in a way forward. Well, uh, I think this, this is really interesting uh, discussion. We always like to end our, our podcasts by thinking for the future. We say ASP doesn't react to the headlines today. We, we try and think about what the headlines will be in the future. So uh, our final question is always, you know, what's the headline of five years or 10 years from now uh, that you think will be... Uh, in this, in this region, in, on this topic? Uh, will people be able to say, you know, still the same problems or will there be uh, a headline to work towards in say 2025 or so um, about, uh, about this topic? You know, um, the world changes so quickly and in so many complicated and, and mm -hmm. drastic ways. Had we been doing this podcast 12 months ago, uh, we would have certainly had no idea about so many things going on in U.S. foreign policy right. as well as um, 
events unfolding across the United States domestically. Even right. one month ago, um, all these situations were entirely different. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to make a prediction that far into the future. Having said that, I think one trend that is set to continue is a relative decline in American hegemony in the Middle East. Um, as you mentioned, the United States is a very powerful actor in the Persian Gulf. The United States is the security guarantor for all six of the countries in the Gulf Cooperation Council. I don't think that's going to change regardless of whether or not Trump or Biden wins. But what is clear is that more of America's partners in the GCC are questioning Washington's long-term commitment uh, to the region, questioning the American vision for the Middle East, And within this context, there are power vacuums being created that countries like the UAE are filling and oftentimes filling in in rather aggressive ways. Uh, We've been talking right now just about um, its diplomatic tools being used by Abu Dhabi and the soft power aspirations of the UAE. But at the same time, the UAE has uh, a foreign policy that, to put it mildly, is a little controversial when we look at um, Emirati actions in Libya, in yeah. Yemen, in Qatar, so on and so forth. But what's clear is that the UAE believes that despite being a small country geographically and having a small population, UAE sees itself um, as a rising power. It Um, definitely has gained a lot of geopolitical clout, economic clout, not only in the Middle East, but throughout Africa, Central Asia, the Balkan region, so on and so forth. And I think um, when we talk uh, in in five years from now, we're going to see a UAE that continues to flex its muscles and to exert its influence in um, many ways, both through yeah. humanitarian diplomacy and also in certain instances, direct military intervention as well. Um, how a more powerful UAE is going to impact the Middle East long term, uh, maybe that's, that's a whole other conversation, but there's no doubt that the UAE is going to play all the cards it has to gain as much influence at a time in which uh, the U.S., is, uh, to put it bluntly, uh, a power in decline. Yeah, yeah, less deference to, to Washington by certainly Abu Dhabi, but I, I'd say that that could go throughout the region. You know, Absolutely. You know, countries and, and leaders uh, look to, to signals and, and react to them, and, and that's, that's an important uh, point. Important point to make to, to a, our Washington audience uh, actions now, uh, you know, echo throughout uh, the future. Uh, Giorgio Cafirio, thanks for being with us. This was great. Uh, good, good conversation. Uh, where can people uh, see more of your work? Uh, if people are interested in my work, they can visit gulfstateanalytics.com or they can follow Gulf State Analytics on Twitter at Gulf State Analytics. Uh, G-U-L-F-S-T-A-T-E-A-N-A-L-Y-T. Great. I follow you guys and I I recommend it to everybody. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine.